0: Chapter 6 this week. Um, if you don't know anything about the book of Romans, it was written by a guy named Paul to a church in Rome about 30 years after Jesus died. Okay, in the first few verses of Romans, you might not be familiar with it, but it's it's all about our need for a savior and the fact that we have this, this sin issue in us. For those of y'all have been here, you might remember for weeks, Pastor Ricky would laugh and say, like, man, this is I'm sorry, y'all, but it's just so heavy because the first few chapters of the book of Romans are just heavy. And he gets to this point, you might have heard the verse in Romans 3.23 when he says, hey, guess what? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Here is part of the issue in the first century church. It was this kind of a ethnic issues. Jews being like, well, hey, Gentiles aren't like us. And Gentiles being like, well, hey, we're saved. And so one of the things Paul was making clear to this church was, hey, look, I don't care if you're a Jew or a Gentile. To us today, he might say, I don't care if you're Caucasian. I don't care if you're African American. I don't care if you're Latino, if you're Asian or other. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's how the book starts, right? All have sinned. We look at that and we go, "Uh oh, we all have a problem." To each one of us in here today, we, at some point, whether we realize it or not, we got to this place of recognizing, "Got a problem." In chapters late in chapter three and in chapter four, we saw God's provision for our wickedness and our sin. And it was His saving grace through our faith that we can put in Christ. And in Romans 5 through 8, there's this message of freedom that's happening. We'll come back to it. In Romans 5, I want to point out a verse to all of us because I know it was covered weeks ago, but it says this, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This word and this verse is key for us. Because what Paul has walked the church through in Rome and now us today is this, hey, look, we all have this issue, this sin issue, but man, God is a God who provides a way out. He provides a way to be saved in the midst of our sin. And once we put our faith in Christ, the news gets even better. In Romans 5.19, he tells us that just by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, we were all, we were all made sinners I know when we look at babies, we think, "Man, they're just so cute, right? They're so cuddly." I remember telling when my oldest Walker was born 14 years ago. I told a friend of mine, "He's just like this pretty cute thing." Most days, right? He's a baby, and I remember I told my friend Craig, "I said, Craig, I, I just don't want to break him. I'm afraid I'm gonna like drop him or something." And he said, "Hey, can I just encourage you with something?" I said, "What's that?" He said, "Your son was born separated from God." Don't look at him as if he's whole and everything's good and he's that cute. He is cute. Make no mistake. But your son was born separated from God and he's put you in his life, Kevin, to help him understand the need that he has for God himself. And it was like, wow. Adam, because of Adam's disobedience, we were all born sinful. We're all made to be sinners. But by one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be not just called, will be made righteous, will be made new people will be made righteous. That's something we covered weeks ago. Because of what he did, we've been made righteous. We'll come back to that. But now in Romans 6, we're going to pick up. In Romans 6, here's what's happening. Paul's making a defense for the gospel that he's teaching people. He has the audacity to be teaching crowds of people. Here's the thing. If you put your faith in Christ, he will impute into you his righteousness. He will make you new. Well, there's these people called the Judaizers that would follow Paul around. And they didn't like that message at all. what they were saying was, wait a second. If you tell people that people are forgiven for whatever they'll do, you know what they'll do? Whatever they want to do. That's what's going to happen. If you set people free, they're going to start acting like crazy free people. That's what's going to happen. So ultimately, Paul wrote this letter as a defense. These Judaizers saying, "Look, I know what I'm talking about, and this gospel is just that good." I'm not worried," he says, "of what's going to happen." But in Romans chapter six, verse one, this part of the letter in chapter six begins this way: He says, "What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound?" By no means. It's as if I like read this question to y'all and y'all yelled no back to me. You ready? Está listo? Okay, bueno. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that, may gra- that grace may abound? That was pretty good. You'll have another chance here in a second. It's like Paul saying, heck no. Here's how he begins this chapter. Okay, so are you saying then that we can continue to sin habitually? Basically, we can continue to live in sin for those of us who call ourselves Christians. And he says, heck no. That's not what I'm saying. So the question of once I come to Christ, can I continue to live in a sin? His answer is absolutely not. He established his point that a true believer in Christ can't continue to willfully and habitually pursue sin. It can't happen. That if that does happen, that that probably marks in that person, recognizes in that person, reveals of that person they never came to Christ in the first place. We see that throughout Scripture. was defined as Luke warned or a seed that fell in a certain part of the path. We see that in Scripture that somebody says, well, when I was young, I prayed a prayer. But Paul says, let me tell you something. For those who put their faith in Christ, you cannot live up and grow up habitually, continually pursuing a life of sin. It can't happen. So he begins the chapter. Is this what I'm saying? Can we continue to do this? And he says, heck no. Or as you all yelled so well, no. Right? Right? but at the same time, Paul recognizes something. He recognizes the experience of every believer there, every believer since then, and every believer in this room right now. The experience of all of us, including myself, is this brutal struggle that we have with sin for the rest of our life. That the point of salvation, it does not just become easy. That these angels wings have been given to us, that a bell rang at Christmas time, and and we got our wings, and we're, we no longer struggle with this. That's not what happens at all. Paul recognizes this. So over the next couple of chapters, Paul's going to talk about this constant fight that we as believers know all too well. It's a practical problem, the one that every Christian deals with. And I tell you this morning, as we look at Romans chapter 6, I hope it encourages you. Because if you're sitting in here and you're like, man, if only people knew this about me. Right? Paul knows it about you. He knew it would be true about you, just like it's true about me and every other believer since Jesus, right? So today he raises the question in a slightly different way. In verse 15, which is what we're going to pick up today, he says this, what then are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Hold on, let me ask that question again. This is where y'all get to respond again, wholeheartedly. This is your last chance. Let's do it well. Ready? What then are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? My son, Walker, forgot to do it. Let's try it all together one more time. Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? No. Thank you, Walker. Good job right there, buddy. So at the beginning of the chapter, he starts off with, wait a second. is new believers, can we do this? Can we live this life of habitual sin for the rest of our life, constantly pursuing a life that we want? That's how he begins the chapter. But halfway through the chapter, he asks a little bit of a different question. I know it looks the same, but in his wording, it's a little bit different. And so here's what he's asking. Look, for those of us who've come to Christ... Should we? Shall we continue to pursue sin? Should we do that? That's right. Paul says, heck no. We shouldn't do that. Keep in mind, Paul's speaking to people like you and I, Christians right here in Romans chapter 6. He's talking to people who've put their faith in Christ. He's saying, hey, look, do you find yourself frustrated? I know I do do sometimes. I find myself frustrated going, Lord, I want to... I want to know you, I want to walk with you, I want to love the things that you love, but my heart at times is drawn to these things. Maybe you've experienced that same thing. Maybe you've experienced, like me, you've at times in life thought, you know what, this Christian life, it seems like it should be more than this. Why is it that I feel like I'm constantly pushing uphill in my relationship with Christ? Why aren't I just more naturally generous? Why aren't I more naturally bold in my faith or courageous, whatever those things are, Paul, in chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Romans specifically, gets really down and dirty with us. He gets really raw with us in these chapters and explaining the, the pain that he walks through and the struggle he walks through as well. These chapters are so important for us for understanding the Christian life. In fact, they're so important. I, one time years ago, I used to work at a place called Pine Cove. Some people aren't here from Pine Cove today. I used to travel around the country interviewing college students to come work with us. And one of the questions I would ask young college students is, hey, um, Tell me about the scripture you have memorized. Do you have any verses memorized? And occasionally somebody would say, well, I've got uh, John 3.16 memorized. I go, that's great. And occasionally somebody would say, on the other end of the spectrum, well, I have a verse memorized, I just don't know where it is in the Bible. I go, well, that's great. What does it say? Jesus wept. Go, okay, thank you. I appreciate that. That's awesome. That was the college of guys. It was the girls that always had more scripture memorized. Felt it was just crazy how it was like that. But one guy in particular at Texas A&M University, I said, hey, do you have any scripture memorized? He said, yeah, I I have a few. And he was kind of sheepish about it. And I said, well, tell me about that. It was like three? Do you think five maybe? Do you think you have ten Bible verses? I was just trying to understand how much he valued scripture. And was he hiding it in his heart? I said, how many verses do you think? he goes, well, I I have Romans chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8 memorized. And I was like, man, who should be doing the interviewing right now? Right. See, somebody had taught this young man, who's now a pastor in the Austin area, somebody had taught him the importance of these verses or these chapters right here in the middle of Romans. That in this letter to the church in Rome, Paul's laying out a whole theology of the Christian life here. And in chapters 5 and in chapter 6 and in chapter 7 and chapter 8, he's unpacking a cliff note version with such depth in it. It's so important that we really, really understand what's going on. So in, in this chapter specifically, he's laying out a theology of how to change. What does it look like as Christians to begin to change? And he says change begins in embracing at your core the new identity that God has given you. You might have heard this story before. I think Pastor Ricky shared it once. I know that Dr. Tony Evans in Dallas has used this story before in illustrating Romans chapter 6. He tells of a guy who goes to a therapist and he says this, I need some help in changing my diet. I need some help in changing my diet and the nutritionist says, tell me what's going on, what, what, what's up with that, what do you mean? He says, well, every time I go to the grocery store, I'm drawn to the dog food aisle. Every time I go to the grocery store, I'm drawn to the dog food aisle, and I, my, my, I just want to rip open the bag of dog food, and I just want to eat it. And when I look at the dog food bag, and I see of the dog playing in the yard with a ball and a Frisbee and something I just, it just makes me want to be him. In fact, there in the grocery store, I actually want to, fall down on my back, and I want to get on my back, and I want to just scratch my belt, my back on the ground, and I just want to start barking and howling, at my goal, what I really would love is if people just walk by and just scratch my belly. And this nutritionist is like, man, that, that sounds like a dietary challenge right there, right? So he asks him, he says, how long have you been like this? And the guy tells the nutritionist, ever since I was a puppy. Here's why Dr. Evans tells this. He says, some things require more than behavior modification. They start with identity. You see, Paul starts with Romans chapter 4 and then chapter 5, before chapter 6 on purpose. That verse that we saw that through this one man's obedience the many will be made righteous, he says to people like you, Felton, and to me as Kevin, he says, you know what? I've done something new in you now, Felton. I've made you new. So earlier in chapter 6, Paul tells us this before this section. He says this in verse 11. He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This word consider, in some translations reckon, comes from the Greek word logizomai. Logizomai, here's what it means. It basically means you need to constantly consider yourselves dead to sin. It's an accounting work. Well, maybe for y'all, y'all who don't know accounting like me, meaning I don't know accounting, picture poker. Because some of y'all play poker. I don't. I'm way too godly for that. But maybe y'all do. Right. And let's say if you know somebody lays down their cards and, man, they've got a pair. And you're thinking, man, all I need is two pair or three of a kind. I mean, not that I know those things, but you're just thinking, if I just had a three of a kind, I could beat this person. But let's say before the game started, you said, hey, look, in this game, aces are wild. In other words, an ace can be anything you want it to be. Well, you look down in your hand, you have two jacks and you have an ace. So you can lay down those three cards with authority and you can say, I've got three jacks. Because what you established before the game was that you can make that ace mean anything you want it to mean. Well, this word here, logizomai, is the same idea. It's an accounting term that things have been switched out. No longer is that card a five, let's say. No longer is that card an ace. It's now representing the jack. It's been changed out. So what Paul is saying here, hey, look, in, in Romans chapter 4, we see the illustration given of Abraham, that he believed in what God was going to do, and God reckoned it to him in his righteousness. He logizomai Reckon to him in righteousness. So here now, Paul says, okay, I've already instructed what I'm going to do. I'm going to change out your faith, and I'm going to give you righteousness. I'm going to take that card. I'm going to give you righteousness. And he says, now you need to do the same thing. Here in Romans chapter 6, he says, hear what I mean. You need to constantly consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's what you need to do. And when you consider yourself dead to sin, God is going to infuse his new power into us. It's truly the idea of I'm going to believe something first and then I'm going to experience it later. God, I'm going to believe the fact that you've done something new in me. And when I do that, new life is going to come in. New life, new power, I'm going to experience it, Lord, from you. This is the apostle's question here. So let's keep going. Romans 6, verse 16. It says this, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. So Paul says he's going to go into the common experiences of the world of the day to help us picture what humanity is like. And he says as human beings are made to be mastered. That's a pretty bold statement for us. That somebody has to master us. And the illustration he gives us is of slavery. Slaves, he says, the Greek word there is doulos, which means a slave or a bond servant. Now I know this could be a difficult analogy, the idea of slavery. But this slavery Paul referring to is more like indentured servanthood. It's not like it's not a great economic system. But it's not like the injustice of kidnapping people in forced labor along ethnic lines. That's not what this type of slavery is. But I tell you, the idea of speaking of a section of Scripture to a church that's an intentionally multi-ethnic church, when you hit a word like slaves, it's intimidating for me. Like, as a chalky white dude, felt, and I go, man, this is an intimidating thing to do here. So I went to a few of my friends that I work with that are African-American pastors. And I say, hey, let me ask you something. Like, when you see this passage of Scripture, is there anything that I'm not seeing that you see in light of history, in light of this terrible stain on this country that we both know all so well, is there anything that you see or is there anything that I should stay away from? and I asked them. In teaching through this, and I'll tell you what they said. They said, Kevin, don't be afraid to use the word that the text says. And they said, and here's why. He said, because our African-American friends know all too well the concept of being bought with a price and living under the ownership and authority of someone else. And it hit me in that moment, like, I just want to hear you all talk about this because I know that my eyes will be opened to something way bigger of a concept here. That they were like, they smiled like, hey, look, we've been talking for generations about this concept. This might be a new concept to you, not a new concept for us. And I was like, you know what, thank you. That's an excellent point. That although that's not the same thing Paul's talking about here, the idea translates. And what Paul is telling us is this. You might think the question is, am I somebody's servant? But that's not the question. Before I tell you the question, let me put it to you this way. There have been countless men and women in the armed forces that have gone before us for generations to fight for our freedom so that we can experience the joy of certain things. And one of those joys is voting, right? And sometimes we go to the voting booth and we see the issues on the ballot and we go, well, I don't really like either one of these options. Sometimes we even get to the presidential race, the primaries, or even the presidential election. I know I voted in many presidential elections at this point, and maybe just maybe you've been like me at times, and you get to the voting booth and you go, Really? Again, I'm not even either way, I'm just saying sometimes you get there and you're like, this is all I have to choose from. I mean, there's like 350 million people in America, and this is all I have to choose from. And in those moments, what I realize is, my freedom is limited. Now, Felton, I could write in your name. you could write in my name and vote here in America. It's not going to go very far. It's just not. So really, the, the, the options we have, our choices are limited. Our freedom is limited. And Paul says, let me tell you something. You're limited to two, to two choices here in this question. The question is not, are you a slave or a servant? The question is, who are you serving? The question is, who are you a slave of? That's the question. So then he keeps going in verse 17. But thanks be to God... That you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Now this is pretty amazing. It's probably why I highlight the verse here that I do, the section of the verse here I do. All too often as Christians, as Christ followers, we walk around day after day after day with our heads hung low. We come to church with our heads hung low. We just think, "Man, I'm just this rotten person." And and and, and um, what we think is humility, we're walking around not embracing the very identity that God has given us. There's this tall tale. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a tall tale, so I'll call it like that. That some people at Dallas Seminary years ago years ago, when Professor Howard Hendricks was alive, that somebody was praying in a chapel service there. At, at, uh, at, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, and they started off their prayer by saying something to the effect of, oh, God, I'm just worthless before you. And the tall tale that I've heard is that Dr. Hendricks said, correction, unworthy, not worthless, right? That he recognized that how we see ourselves is so important. And so Paul is telling us here, hey, look, thanks be to God is something that's happened. In other words, there's no reason to be slumped over. There's no reason to be sitting here going like, oh, I'm just such a terrible terrible person, is what Paul tells us is, no, no, praise be to God what he's done. Is that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. This is nothing that you have done, nothing that I've done, but something that God has done, and for those of us who put our faith in Christ, he's saying, I've done something at the core of who you are. I've done something miraculous at the core of who you are. It's nothing new. It's something he told Ezekiel Long before something he would do, it says this in Ezekiel chapter 36, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What Paul is telling us here is, hey, look, great news. God has saved us from something. He has saved us from our our very sin. But it's not like Maybe some of us in this room or other people's experience of going to something like Alcoholics Anonymous. Where you might go there and you might say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start making a change. And man, there's some great work done in that, no doubt. You get it around a community of people that are walking right there with the struggle that you are, right there next to you. It's not the same as this. What Paul, Paul is teaching us is, is hey, look, here's what's happened differently. Is that God actually opens up our, our spiritual chest. And he takes this dead heart that is within us and he puts in this new heart within us. And he closes us back up. And Paul says in the middle of Romans chapter 6 Thanks be to God who's made us obedient from the heart. And what that means is, as Christ followers, as Christ followers, we know that we know what we ought to be, what we want to be doing at times. It's like. Some of y'all might remember, I don't know, years and years ago in the mid-90s, early 90s, there was a really, really foul comedian by the name of uh, Andrew Dice Clay. Any of y'all know this person? I'm going way back. This guy was foul. And a lot of my friends in high school listened to this guy. And I grew up going to church, but I didn't really know what being a Christian really was. I was the guy who candidly... When I went to church at times, I would actually even go sit in the bathroom for the entire service. I just didn't want to be in the service. I wasn't interested in it, right? But then I came to understand of a God who loved me and who wanted me to know Him and walk with Him personally. And I went to a camp in North Carolina. I was sitting on a hill overlooking this big hill. And it was nighttime. The moon was in the sky. And it just like hit me like, God, you love me. And you want to know me. You want me to walk with you like in relationship. God, I want that. I want that. And and that night, sitting on this rock overlooking this hill in North Carolina when I was 16 years old, I said, God, I want that. And in that moment, God cracks open my spiritual chest, and he takes out this dead heart that at times I was probably trying to do better in my life. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you a new heart. Well, then I go back from camp. And these friends of mine were like, hey, let's go to the movie. like, okay, so we went to some movie. I get in there, and I realize in the movie is this comedian, Andrew Dice Clay. This movie's foul of just bad jokes. It wasn't even funny, and it was foul. But I tell you what was different about me in that moment was it didn't feel right. There was something within me. You see, God had made me obedient from the heart. They were saying, something's not right. I remember one time I was in a room and with some friends, and we were contemplating doing some really bad stuff, and there was this fan in the room the year of high school. And this fan was making this sound, like a creaking sound as it went around. It was like a wobbling fan. It needed some, some WD-4 it or something. But as it went around, you know what I thought I heard it saying? As a new believer in Christ, as we were contemplating doing some bad stuff, it sure sounded like what the fan was actually saying was, something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. Something. And I remember sitting there going, like, it feels like that fan is speaking to me right now. You see, God had made me obedient from the heart, and I was beginning to live it out. I was beginning to work it out. Now, at times, our hearts definitely need to be pointed in the direction of Christ and righteousness, no doubt. But in those little moments like that, what I begin to realize is something's different. And Paul stops and he tells that right here in the middle of Romans chapter 6. Like, something's different. He's made us obedient from the heart. We don't need to walk around with slumped heads anymore. Going, I'm just such a terrible person. It's like we can walk around with humility and gratefulness. Like, wow, God, thank you for what you've done in me. Thank you, the fact you took my dead heart out and you gave me life. He keeps going in Romans chapter 6, verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. I love the little bit of sarcasm that it sounds like. You're right? Hey, I'm, I'm going to kind of bring it down to your level here. He's taking, talking to guys like me, like, Kevin, I know this is over your head. Let me speak slower for you Kevin. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So Paul's talking about these two types of slavery. He says we've been freed from the set free from the slavery of sin that once we had to sin. That's who we were. Before we came to Christ there was no choice no matter whether we chose what we thought was good or chose what we thought was wrong, we ended up making choices that led to evil. That's probably what Paul's telling us here. That even when we try to do the right things, they were filled with selfishness. Well then, what happens when we sin as believers? Now we're free. Yet we go back and we choose to do the wrong thing sometimes. We're free, but we choose to do these things that we don't want to do, he ends up telling us in Romans chapter 7. We're confronted with a temptation for a moment to indulge ourselves, and at times we don't choose to listen to the fan that says, something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. Instead of you, this is what I want to do right now, and I'm just going to do what I want to do right now. In Romans chapter 7, verse 15, Paul eventually says, I don't understand the things I do. For sometimes the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. I've always referred to it candidly as the do-do verse. It's just he says do so many times in it. I don't understand what I do. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. Well, here is he's talking about these two types of slavery. He's saying, look, we've been set free from having to sin. So he says, look what happens. Lawlessness leads to more Lawlessness. You understand how sin works. In other words, think about what John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus uh, tells us about how life works. He says, Jesus answered them in John 8, verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So look at this verse. If you could put this verse up here for us. I highlighted this part of this verse as well. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The point is this, is that sin works to enslave. We might think that sin is cute, but sin is a captor. We might think that we can own sin, but sin will own us. Sin is a natural predator that is always looking for dominance. I tell you what I mean by this. Is years ago, I was speaking in front of a room full of about a thousand college students, a little bit more than a thousand college students, and we had this segment we chose to do, highlighting some different things where I said, you know what we'll do is we'll bring up like a few chairs. Kind of like Johnny Carson back in the day. Like when he would bring up Jack Hanna way back in the day, and Jack Hanna would bring out these crazy animals, and they would fly on Johnny Carson's head or other things. You've seen people since then do the same idea. And so I said, here's what we'll do. is I'll have a desk, and I'm going to call this guy, and he's going to bring some animals out, and I'm going to talk to him about these animals. He didn't tell me what animals he's going to bring. Well, all of a sudden, he comes out on stage in front of 1,000-plus college students, and he hands me an alligator. So I'm like, well, this thing's cute. It's only like three feet long. I'm like, how bad can it be? I mean, he's the one who brought it out here. And so he, he's bringing it out, he's talking about God's design of this alligator. I'm like, well, that's fascinating. He's like, well, and he, he says this to me in front of everybody. Do you want to hold it? Now, I can't be challenged in front of a thousand people and act like I'm afraid to hold an alligator, right? So he's like, hey, you want to hold it? I'm like, Sure. So he hands me this alligator. So I do what you would think you should do with an alligator. I grab it by the tail, and I grab it like right underneath its neck. Yeah, it made sense to me at the time. Robbie, were you in the room? Hey, Robbie, were you in the room for this? I don't even You might have been in the room for this. So anyway, I'm standing there, and I'm holding this alligator, one hand on the tail, one hand underneath his neck. And I'm standing there, and he starts talking about the way this thing is designed. Like, look at the way his eyes are. Look at the way his teeth are. And I'm holding this thing like, wow. Well, right in the middle of a while he's talking, this alligator decides that he wants to eat my face off. Right? So this alligator just turns and just snaps at me. Well, I mean, I'm glad I didn't just bang this thing on the floor because that was what I want to do. But with, with instinct, just total instinct, I just went, oh, my gosh. And I just held this alligator upside down by the tail. So I'm like sitting in the child, just went, oh, my gosh. Well, then everybody just dies laughing because, they're like, he's afraid and I'm like, yeah, I'm afraid. This thing's trying to eat my face off, right? But I'm holding the ti- the not the tiger. I'm holding the alligator, three foot alligator. It's a baby alligator, but it was big to me, and the teeth look really, really mean, right? So I'm I'm holding the alligator upside down. Oftentimes we see sin the same way. We see sin as a three foot baby alligator that I can just I can just kind of hold it upside down. I can just kind of keep it at a distance. I can kind of tickle it when I want to. I can grab its neck when I want to. I can own it the way I want to. And what Paul's telling us is that lawlessness leads to lawlessness. That it's not a three-foot alligator. What sin is, is a 14-foot alligator that weighs hundreds of pounds that you see on TV with somebody yelling, shoot him. Right? That's what happens in the show Swamp People. Is that they find these alligators, they hook them, and then this guy Troy starts yelling, shoot him. That's what they do. I'm from Baton Rouge. I talk to people that talk like that down in Pierre Part and and the Chafalaya River Basin. That's actually how they talk, and that's actually what they do with long alligators. They don't try to hold them by the tail and underneath their neck. They say, shoot him." right? That's what Paul is telling us that sin is like. I tell you what, Steph and I have gotten to do premarital counseling. My wife, Stephanie, and I have gotten to do premarital counseling with so many couples over the years. And never once, sitting on the couch of our, in our den, never once as a couple said, here's our plan. We are so looking forward to getting married here soon. But once we get married, I'm going to start emotionally distancing myself from my spouse. They never say that. They never say, you know what I'm going to do? is when I get married, I'm going to start just cutting my wife down all the time. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. They never say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get married in just a few weeks, and then once I do, in a few years, I'm going to start flirting with other people at work. They never say sitting on our couch, here, I'm going to marry this sweet person next to me. But here in a few years, I'm going to trade this person in for somebody a little bit younger. They never say that. You know why they never say that? Because sin is subtle. And it feels like it's a little three-foot baby alligator. But what Paul tells us here as believers is stop and wake up. Realize that lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. That what it brings is death. You know, growing up when I got to middle school, I didn't love school. I've told my kids this many times. I didn't love school. Maybe some of y'all were like me. I grew up going to school because I had to, but I didn't love it. Well, in middle school, I started noticing that I didn't pay attention a lot in school because I was a little bit bored. And and so, in order to just help me, I just started looking on um, other people's sheets for tests when I took them. It's called cheating, Felton. That's what I started doing. And I was pretty good at it. I mean, I I, I could just, I I mean, I could do one of those things where you just kind of glance with your eyes and you kind of do your thing. Man, in seventh grade and eighth grade, I was fine in ninth grade. I was good. 10th grade, 11th grade, I was really good. 12th grade, man, I was good. Got to college, thought I was good. I got into a test, an exam, Advanced Experimental Statist- Statistical Psychology, Psych 2017 at LSU, who are the national champions right now. I just didn't mention I'm just saying. And I got into this Psych 2017 class and I'm sitting in the lab part of my final in front of some computers, and all of a sudden, I cannot remember anything that I had studied. And I panicked. And I looked in the computer next to me, with my eyes shifting sideways. I found the answers on that computer screen. I put it in mine, and I turned in my exam. felt bad. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Right? But I just did what I did. Because lawlessness had been creating more lawlessness in my life for years in regards to cheating. It just got bigger and bigger. I began to depend on it more and depend on it more. Well, then the next week, I go to the lecture part of the same class at LSU, sitting in a room full of 300 people. I was sitting in an aisle seat when the professor, when I started taking the exam, came and stood right next to me for the entire exam. I would never talked to this guy in my entire life. And he's standing right on my left. And I'm going, this is so weird. And I walk down to the front of the class and I go to turn in my exam. And back then you would then find your social security number on a piece of paper on his desk. And you would excuse the days before everybody would steal your identity like that in that moment. Found my social security number and I scrolled to the right to find out the the score I got on my lab final the week before. Well, it said zero. So I thought, oh, I didn't miss any. Right, no big deal. Well, then the professor says, (laughs) the professor says, are you Kevin East? And I said, I am. How did you know that? That's so cool. He said, can I, can I speak to you out in the hallway? I said, sure. And we walked out in the hallway, and he said, hey, I want you to know something. I hate cheaters. And I said, so do I. Didn't even think anything of it. And he said, well, i got an interesting question for you. I said, what's that? He said, I, I need to understand how last week in your lab final, when you had Form A of the test, how did you get all of Form B's answers On your test. You see, there were two different forms of the same exam. And the one next to me on my right and left was form B. And I just kind of looked at him and I was like, "Uh uh-oh. And he says this. I never will forget it. He said, hey, Kevin, I want you to know I'm going to turn in your name to the dean of students here at LSU. I'm going to recommend that you fail my course and be expelled from this university. Have a good day. That's what he said to me. And he turned around and he walked back in the class and I sat down on the stairway in the hall and I was like, I'm dead. I'm just dead. When an act of God's grace, months later when I met with the dean of students, the dean of students at LSU, national champions, the dean of students at LSU actually quoted scripture to me in my meeting with him. I couldn't even believe it. I failed the class, didn't get expelled from LSU, had to take the class over with the same professor the next semester, who started that next semester this way. I'm just on a tangent now, but y'all look interested, okay? He said this. He said, I want you to know I hate cheaters. And in fact, in this room right now, there's a cheater sitting here. Now, Felton, I'm a godly man. But I was new in my faith back then. I remember thinking, if he points me out, I'm going to stand up and pick up my chair, and I'm going to jab this chair leg through his temple here in front of everybody. I was like, that's biblical. Jail did it like in Judges chapter something. I can do it too. (laughs) But here's the thing. The cheating for me that started off young, it might have felt like holding an alligator by the tail. But man, later in life I realized this is a 14-foot beast that is chewing me alive. Many of us in here realize we don't realize that's the same thing happening to us. And Paul says, lawlessness leads... To lawlessness. We might think we're in control, but he says, "No, no, no, you're not in control. My friend Dr. Tim Kimmel gives us four areas that can trap us in life when it comes to sin. Wealth, beauty, power, and fame, he calls it. Wealth. To many, this represents security, pleasure, and control. We feel like wealth gives us the control we want and the security we need for the future. And to us, it's never enough. There's always a need for more. Wealth. It could entrap us, and it could begin to uh, devour us and destroy us. For others, it's beauty that some people long to be accepted. They can't be happy unless certain people are happy with them or desire them. They'll go to great lengths to impress others or to keep up with the younger people around them. But with every passing day, their efforts have less of an impact. It's this, this craving to be beautiful. Power. Wealth, beauty, and power. Power represents strength. We don't want to be followers. We want to be leaders. We want to be in charge. We want to set the direction. We want to control our own destiny. And for many of us, the idea of having power is something that we just lust after. And it controls us. Lastly is fame. Some of us love influence and recognition. We believe anonymity is the worst. It's like the seal of death. So we go to great lengths to stay at the forefront of other people's minds and we just find ourselves addicted to likes on Facebook and views on Instagram or on YouTube or those other things. So what's your trap? Paul might ask you today. What's your trap? Mine, candidly, is probably wealth. That I can easily view money as security. where I can be afraid to go, we might have $100, we really, really need $200. Or it can be the idea of just accumulating things and stuff. Because if I can just get that newer car, man, I'm going to sure love the inside of that dashboard the way it looks when you first start driving that car with a different dash. Then about three days later, you don't notice it anymore. Man, for those two and a half days, it's nice. But for me, it's probably about the security and the control that I feel like wealth could bring. What's your trap? Wealth, beauty, power, and fame. It's not a three-foot alligator. It's a 14-foot beast that's wanting to destroy you. Paul continues in verse 20 through 22. He says this, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin, he says in verse 22, and have become slaves of God, The fruit you get leads to sanctification in its end, eternal life. He's saying this, life and death are the two results. What is death? We're not just talking physical death. We will all, 10 out of 10 out of us, die someday a physical death. Science shows us that. History shows us that. But what Paul is saying, I'm not talking about then. I'm talking about now. I'm talking about life and death right now is that sin brings death. Sin brings separation. Sin brings shame, he tells us. Maybe some of you are like me. When you think back to different parts of your life, quite frankly, you're ashamed of things that you've done. You're ashamed of the ways you've hurt people. You look back because sin brings shame. I'm not even talking guilt. I'm talking... An unhealthy step past that where you just look back and you just think I just feel such a sense of shame that's what Paul describes as death lawlessness leads to more lawlessness and that leads to death not just death physically but death right here and right now so here's a tragedy for all of us today for us to think about here's the tragedy of sin in the believer's life we've been set free from sin and become slaves to God But yet, for some reason, we continue to drink from the fountain of death. We continue to to sow death and therefore reap this life that seems hollow. This experience that seems detached. This experience that seems powerless. And so Paul's raising the question in this passage, what good is it to be set free from sin by Jesus and have every opportunity and every possibility of walking in holiness and righteousness? What good is it is if at the moment of choice we ignore these things and go right on acting as if we're slaves of sin? That's what he's saying. What good is it? Look, Tyler, Texas is filled with churches, right? I mean, I have to pass like 30, it seems like, just to get here on Sunday mornings, right? Right? Tyler, Texas is filled with churches, and each of those churches are filled with many people, some of which are Christ followers, right? Here's the sad thing. How is it that each Sunday morning so many of us leave church and we go back into Tyler, Texas, and people interact with us, and they see nothing different than they see with people that never go to church at all on Sunday mornings? They see no difference in our life No difference in our joy, no difference in our generosity, nothing. In fact, many restaurants avoid us. That's the reality. You talk to any person who's been a servant or restaurant, and they talk to you about those Christians. That on Sundays after church, how cheap we are so often. That we show up at restaurants and other places, and people go, this is nothing new to me. This is the same old, same old experience, but what would it look like if you and I and everybody in here, what if we chose to begin walking in the newness of life that Christ has given to us? What if we chose to start putting other needs before our own? What if we asked God to see people with spiritual eyes, that if he leads us to be crazy generous, that we would? What would that look like? I tell you, our family gets stared at quite a bit. It's kind of funny to us. We have a lot of kids in our family we have kids that are African-American. We have kids that are Caucasian. We have five kids. We have a foster son right now who's, I think, about three years old-ish. Um, he's been with us a while. Um, on Sundays when we have our mentee with us, a uh, catering, and we, we go to restaurants, people like look at us and like, okay, there is now um, four African-American kids and three white kids with you all. So we've been asked, like, what's your story? Is this like a daycare? You see, we stick out. We've been stopped in gas stations, driving up north, and people say, hey, can we just ask you, like, what's y'all's story? And, oh, man, that's an awesome story. You see, God has adopted us. It's amazing this truth that's happened, and, and we've just adopted others. And our family is so much bigger and richer and more awesome because of it. It's pretty cool. You see, we stick out like a sore thumb to some people. Wouldn't it be great if through our outward actions we stuck out to this world? You see, Paul says that God, he freed us to something. He freed us to become slaves of righteousness. So he says, you know what, the point of Romans chapter 6 is this. He set us free, free to have a sense of worth, free to be secure in who we are, free to know who God is, free to walk with him, free from the control and the blame and the shame and the death that it brings free at last to respond to who God is, to know Him, to walk with Him, to be used by Him. That's the point of Romans chapter 6. In fact, he ends it this way. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the verse that many of us know very, very well, he starts with this, For the wages of sin is death. It's how he finishes out this chapter. We know this verse. We often use it as part of a short explanation of the salvation story, what it means to come to Christ. For the wages of sin is death. But we're talking about in the context of this verse, the here and now. We're not talking about the end of the physical life. We're talking about in the here and the now. that The more you allow sin to control your life, the more you'll experience a kind of living death. It'll never satisfy. That's what he's telling us. For the wages of sin is death. You want to reap that? You want to, you want to, you want to, Pursue a life of that. You want to experiment with that and ignore the fan that says something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. You want to ignore it. Here's what you're going to experience. You're going to experience death. And the way that death looks sometimes is in the form of consequences here on this earth. Sometimes in the form of retaking an entire semester class at LSU National Champions. That's what it's going to look like Sometimes. You're going to experience death. You're going to experience the shame. For the wages of sin is death. Remember what he said in verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? He said. That's how he begins his last verse. The wages of sin is death. He says, you know what? Why do you keep going back there? But this is how he ultimately ends this chapter. But the free gift of God eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord he says you know what now there's a different master Paul tells us that he offers us something and you know what it's not it's not a wage it's not something that we've earned it's a gift it's a free gift that, that new master offers us this gift it's called life eternal life It's where we get to experience joy and freedom and security and peace. That's where that happens. And here's the kicker. He doesn't require us to work for it. He doesn't require us to earn it. He gives his full forgiveness and full acceptance and offers it to us as a free gift. And then he says, now walk in that. Go and experience and enjoy that abundant life that only I can bring. And as you experience that abundant life, Bless others with it. We see all through Scripture. So for us this morning, may God help us to set sin aside and to live as the free men and women that God has created us to be, who He's made us to be. Romans five nineteen. Right, as Paul said in Galatians five one, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. We've been s- freed from sin's slavery. So let's walk in the freedom he's given us. Let me pray for us and we'll be done for this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you for the truth of your word. That, Lord, when we unpack it, it's just so rich and so true. Lord, we totally relate to Paul. I know I do. I totally relate to him when he says, you know, hey, now that you've tasted this grace, you've experienced this grace, should we walk? Should we continue to walk in sin? And how oftentimes we just stumble around and we choose the very thing that brings death. And so Father, this morning here before You, we just sit and we confess. Lord, we are honest before You. Lord, we do that. Father, I ask, would You point our hearts in Your direction? Lord, You've made us obedient from the heart. You've given us a brand new heart. You've given us the power of yours within us. Lord, may we respond to the power that you've given us. May we respond in those subtle moments when we hear the fans saying something's wrong. Lord, may we respond in boldness and in the power that you give us to walk away from sin and to walk in the freedom of newness of life. That's our prayer today. So Lord, together we pray this in Jesus' name. Okay, thanks, Felton. Warren, we're done, right? Great. you will have a great afternoon, a great week. Pastor Ricky will be back next week. We'll see you then.